Tara, I'm wondering if you could start with a brief introduction of yourself, your name, and a little bit about the work you do. Sure, I'd be happy to. My name is Tara Henley. I'm a journalist, author, and podcaster in Canada, and I do current affairs journalism. Brilliant. Would you mind walking us through your journey of becoming a journalist? I think they play a really important role in our culture, in our society, in helping us understand the current issues. And I think your philosophy is really important to to understand. So could you give us uh, sort of your journey into becoming a journalist and, and what that's looked like? Sure, I'd be happy to. And and before I do that, let me just say I'm very happy to be here with you today. Um, as you know, I, I think you're a really thoughtful and uh, perceptive interviewer, and I'm really happy to be on the podcast today. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Um, my journey in journalism started uh, about 20 plus years ago and um, kind of by accident. So I was at SFU um, and we had a great student newspaper. It was quite funny and very political. And at a certain point, I would be up. I was a TA at that point. I had just started my master's degree and I would be sitting up in my office reading the newspaper. And I just thought, I need to get involved. This this paper is so good. And um, I went down to, it was called The Peak. It is called The Peak. And I went down to the office and said, give me an assignment. I want to get involved. And the first assignment that I was given was a news story, and it was about Disney and sweatshops. And the Hong Kong Christian Association had done an undercover investigation into the affiliated factories um, and of Disney in that region and uh, had found some concerning things. And uh, at that point, Disney had not given comment to anyone in Canada. And so for some reason... <laughs> in the peaks kind of cavernous basement bizarre sort of uh offices late one production night i got through to the corporate communications officer for disney america and he gave me an interview um i said i'm from the student press i would really like to get both sides of the story and he said okay dear and gave me an interview and he said some very mildly controversial things in that interview, uh, but also he, he, that was the first comment that we had known of in Canada. And uh, I went to see my favorite professor and she said, call up the Georgia Strait and ask them if they want the story. Georgia Strait, of course, the um, alternative news and arts weekly in uh, Vancouver. And so I did. And uh, the editor there bought the story and worked with me on it and ran it and then uh, said, come down for a cup of coffee. And I went to meet him for coffee and he said, uh, is this something that you would like to do? And of course it was. And so I said, yes. And um, he said, what are you interested in? And at that point I was doing my master's thesis on hip hop. I know you're a big hip hop fan as well. Um, so they put me in the music section. And so I started doing concert reviews and uh, album reviews and started interviewing rappers. And as soon as I started doing journalism, I knew that there was nothing else that I wanted to do. And I think the big turning point came for me in the lead up to the war in Iraq. And I was in New York interviewing anti-war rappers and after I left New York, I took a train up to Hamilton for this cultural studies conference that I was supposed to give a paper at. And when I got up to Hamilton, I was so struck by the fact that no one said anything about the war. And I had just come from the center of one of the biggest news stories and uh, to leave that and to go to an academic setting where you give a paper and maybe 11 people hear it and nobody wanted to talk about the war at all. I just knew that I was going to leave academia and give journalism a shot. And so in the first six years of my career, I um, covered hip hop and I ended up as a columnist at Double XL in New York, um, living in Canada still, but writing for Double XL with just a wonderful, wonderful um, editor, Elliot Wilson, and someone who cared very deeply about free speech and free expression and allowed us to write and say what we wanted. And um, I just learned so much at that stage of my career, just so, so much. And 
uh, after that, I came uh, to Toronto, moved to Toronto. I worked in women's magazines for about seven years as a writer and then an editor. And then I went to the CBC. So I worked on George Strombolopoulos tonight for the last season of that. And then I went to Current Affairs Radio and uh, spent a number of years in Current Affairs Radio um, in Toronto and then Vancouver and then Toronto again. I worked most of the roles in my newsroom show producer, show director, morning producer, night producer, chase producer. Um, and at that kind of juncture, I also took some time off and wrote a book called Lean Out. And uh, that brings me up to January of this year when I left the CBC pretty publicly and went to uh, Substack where I have been writing and podcasting there. That's an incredible story. I'd like to start with conducting interviews. It's something mm. obviously that interests me personally, but what is it what was it like I guess to start with the the experience with having a Disney executive uh be willing to have that first interview, that that opportunity for someone to give you their time um and is there other standout interviews for you? That one was such a surprise because I didn't expect to get it. Um and uh, I was, of course, very green, <laughs> very young, very green, didn't know what I was doing. I think um, in the 20, 21 years plus since, um, interviewing is really one of the passions of my life. And I think I really love people and I really love hearing people's stories. And I feel like it's an incredible um, privilege of my life to get to do that. So there's been many, many standout interviews over the years. Um, and I think since I went to Substack and, and started a podcast there, and probably on my, this, this week, I'm doing my 52nd episode. Um, and in that time, there's been a number, I think the first episode really stands out with Batya Angar Sargon. She's the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek. And she had written a book called Bad News about the state of journalism. Journalism is something I cover a lot in my kind of basket of topics on Substack. But the first interview was so striking for me because it was such an incredible relief to speak freely. I had been in quite a stifled environment for quite a long time. And although I was very open and opinionated behind the scenes, certainly in our um, story meetings, I had not talked publicly about any of my concerns and was very, very careful in what I said publicly. On Twitter, um, I often, uh, leading up to going to Substack, I often moderated literary panels and public events, and I was very, very careful in what I said publicly. And so that interview was the first one that I felt like some of the, you know, I felt a little bit freed to ask the kind of questions that I most wanted to ask. So that was very freeing. Another standout interview, someone whose work is really important to me and who I just think is a really special human being is Shaka Senghor. I don't know if you know about him at all. No. So he's, um, He's a criminal justice advocate, and he spent, um, I believe it was 17 years in prison, seven of which were in solitary confinement. And during the course of being in prison, um, just had this real awakening and uh, changed his life. And when he came out, uh, became this really important writer and thinker and speaker and mentor to people in the community. And I interviewed him in the course of my first, from my book, I'm working on another one right now. So I say first, um, but I flew to LA and sat down with him. And uh, first of all, he's just a very, very talented writer. That's the important thing to say, to say off the top, but he's also just a really special thinker. And uh, I had this really moving hour with him in his kitchen in LA. Um, and also, there were very many parallels in our story. And I love that about interviewing, you know, um, he, he had started writing hip hop as well for his prison newspaper. He had, um, a very similar background to me in some respects in that both of us had, um, had a really difficult time with one of our parents. In my case, my father left when I was about 13 and uh, had huge emotional impacts on my life, also financial impacts. In his case, it was a very difficult, strained relationship with his mother. Um, we had both experienced um, really difficult things as young adults. He had been shot um, very, very 
traumatic experience for him when he was 17 he had been shot and he had been sent back out to the same streets immediately after and you know no one had hugged him and no one had told him it was okay nobody had given him any counseling and so that had had huge emotional impacts on him in my case very very different experience when i was 24 i had um colon cancer i had a cancerous um polyp in my in my colon that had to be removed and i had to have serious surgery and that was um a real turning point in my life in a very similar way. Although the circumstances, as you can imagine, radically, radically different, but the emotional impact on both of us was very much the same. Um, so Shaka is someone I have just great admiration and respect for and feel kind of a deep bond with. And I had him on the podcast when I went to Substack and, and his latest book letters to the sons of society is as about, being a father to sons it's about masculinity it's about resilience um and it's also about finding your way through the creative process through writing through speaking um so that was another really special special moment for me that's that's an incredible aspect of the interviewing process because i think that's the way we kind of depoliticize reconnect with other people is through more long form uh communication where we're able to share not just maybe our political perspectives or religious perspectives but also who we are what we've been through what we've overcome because that's that's where the rubber often hits the pavement as to why we think what we think where we get our views from mm, what, so what, is, right. what is your perspective when we're talking about journalism you have people like to think of philosophy like it's a separate kind of discipline but philosophy is sort of what brings your values and perspectives and reading your articles you highlight the importance of um, asking tough questions um, the pursuit of truth uh, in an honest way can you explain some of your perspective on what you think journalism is in our culture mm-hmm this is something obviously I think about all the time. So it's a great question. And journalism has really changed in the time that I've been a journalist. I mean, journalism uh, at one point was a very working class profession and it is no longer that it's a very elite profession now. And even in Canada, I mean, in the States, they hire from the Ivy league university. So that's a very, very, very tiny percentage of the population that can afford to go to those Ivy league universities, right? Candidates, it's not, that, but it is, it is a very sort of elite space. And so I think that is very different now. And that has changed a lot of how we do journalism and the perspective of journalism. And that's something I push back on a lot. Um, I also think, you know, the slogan when I was coming up with journalism was you afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I think we are falling down in that for sure right now. I also think that the idea when I was coming up was that we are on a fact-finding mission, right? And I've done all kinds of journalism. So I've done, you know, news at some points. I've done current affairs, which is this crazy mix of all kinds of stories and is not about investigative reporting. It is not about, you know, reporting the news. It is about putting things in context. What does this all mean? Um, but I've also done arts journalism and I've, you know, done a lot of um writing on books. I mean, I've done a lot of different mediums in my, in my career, but I think what the general kind of thrust used to be is we are on a fact finding mission. We are trying to understand the world around us and to relay what we see to the public. And the idea was never about influencing the public or in trying to influence their decision-making, it was sort of predicated on a trust of the public that if the public has good enough information, the public will make choices as it sees fit. It will vote people out or it will demand accountability through processes or, or institutional bodies. But the, the fundamental idea was you trust the public and that our job, which is try to get as accurate information to the public as possible. Is it, you know, what is the reality here? That has really changed. And it changed around 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. And you saw the New York Times, for example, a very famous op-ed by, I think it was Jim Ruttenberg, saying that Trump is testing the norms of journalism. And the idea was that if you have someone like Donald Trump, who uh, was viewed as 
really um, testing the norms of democracy. And, and some people argued moving towards fascism. It was not enough to just give the information that it had to be much stronger than that. And in order to do that, we had to abandon some of the distance that we as journalists had had. Unfortunately with that is once you start abandoning norms, it's much harder to bring them back. And um, you don't necessarily, like once that genie's out of the bottle, you don't necessarily get to see where it goes. And what I've observed since 2016 is a real move in journalism towards trying to influence the public. That it's that we are responsible in some ways for how the public responds to the information. And that um, that ends up being sometimes in some cases more of a narrative shaping exercise more of a exercise in activism than it is in just fact finding but my view is uh, very much in line with matt taibbi um famous american journalist also yes. substacker wrote hate inc about the trends in journalism right now and what he says is getting the facts is really hard enough and that is very much the case it's hard enough it's a job in itself enough to figure out what's going on and to try to reflect that accurately without trying to get in there and influence public opinion. Um, and so my view, certainly what I aspire to do is to have kind of low, um, low certainty in my work to know, to remind myself all the time that I could always be wrong and to um, try all of the time to stick to trying to figure out what's going on and to um, trust the public and trust the discernment of the public. And, you know, it's, it's a little different now. I'm in opinion writing and whereas current affairs, uh, it was very important for me to keep my opinion out of things. So I do offer opinions sometimes, but I think the general ethos of what I'm trying to do is about trusting the public and trying to reflect reality in the best way that I can and to know that new information can always emerge, new facts can emerge, and that um, to try to act in humility, to know that that um, that I don't necessarily always know, that I could always be wrong. I think that that's so important for us to reflect on as much as we can. Where did that separation happen with you and the CBC? Where did you start to see that this value, this philosophy that you hold was somewhat separated from where you were working? And I think that in those circumstances, it can it can affect like your sense of self. Um, when I've been in jobs, I haven't felt reflected my values and it sort of sucks something out of you. It, it makes you feel like you're not your, your best self. What was that journey like? And, and when did you start to notice that or feel that? Hmm. Yeah. Um, values is a really good word because I did start to feel like what we were doing was going against my values. Um, and I have to say, I, I loved the CBC. Uh, it was a huge, huge part of my life growing up, listening to the CBC. I was very proud to be at the CBC and there was a lot of really good work being done in that building. And I think to some extent there still is, um, there's a lot of really good journalists in that building. Um, I'm thinking of the Toronto building in particular, who are working really hard to push back on some of the stuff that I have talked about publicly. And I know because I hear from them. So there are really good people in that building. And um, overall, I think what happened was I had, and I, I'm going to have to use a term here that I don't like using, which is woke, but I don't know how else to describe the ideology that I'm talking about. Um, it is an ideology that is very much a elite political ideology. It is quite unpopular in the um, both the Canadian and the American public. It is very, very far left on cultural issues, but um, quite right on uh, economic issues. It is much more concerned with symbolic gestures than it is with the material conditions of people's lives. And uh, in my view, has a lot to do with virtue signaling. And um, so that's sort of a, like a, a snapshot of what I'm trying to talk about. I apologize for using the word woke. I know people find it very 
upsetting, but I don't know what else to call it. And so until we know a word for this movement, I have to just use that one. (laughs) Anyways, that, that, um, that ethos had always been in the room at CBC, but my experience, um, leading up to the pandemic was, it was just one voice in the room. And, um, I have no problem with it being a voice in the room, but in the kind of extreme climate of the pandemic that we found ourselves in, I began to feel like that was the only voice in the room. And I began to feel like it was harder and harder to get perspectives on the air that disagreed with that kind of set, that cluster of opinions on, you know, a number of topics, race, gender, COVID. Um, And knowing what I know, because I've looked at the data quite a bit, I know that this is not a public a popular um, opinion with the public, that there are many, many people of all races and all genders and all backgrounds who don't like this ideology or parts of this ideology. There are many, many views on the big issues of our day throughout Canada. And I felt we were doing a disservice, not reflecting more viewpoints. Um, And particularly after George Floyd, there was a real... um, swift and decisive move towards this ideology after what happened with George Floyd, which was horrific and, you know, triggered a racial reckoning that I think was long overdue and also um, represented a, a really sort of extreme turn within the organization from my perspective. And there were a number of turning points. I, I certainly argued about this in story meetings every day for probably two years, close to two years. Um, and in the end, I mean, I felt like I could not do my job properly anymore. And I felt, um, I was getting a lot of complaints from the public about this stuff. And I felt like it was time to have a more public conversation about these issues, given that it was the national broadcaster, given that it's an incredibly important institution in our country, and given that it was publicly funded, which I believe it should continue to be publicly funded, just for the record. Um, And so the main kind of thrust of my resignation letter, which I made public, I was at that time on contract um, as a full-time current affairs producer, My contract was uh, until December 2022, and I was assigned to a small regional show called Ontario Morning, and I was also um, a a once-a-month books columnist uh, on air for for the region. And the arguments that I made in my resignation letter were about trends in coverage. They're about our COVID coverage, and I did not feel we had been sufficiently critical. I felt we'd been overly credulous of government and uh, public health. And it was about describing this stifling atmosphere that I had experienced, this um, real sense of groupthink and uh, kind of widespread self-censorship that I observed. It was not to say that I was silenced or censored. That is not anything that I've argued. I argued in story meetings every day. I did not feel silenced. Um, But I felt that as an organization, the direction we were going was not good. And this also included top-down policies. So a couple that I highlighted, the examples in the the letter were, we were, were, at least in my newsroom, doing race-based booking forms. And this was not something that was made public. And so... Sorry, what is that? So it was a form that you filled out um, after you booked someone and it would break down sort of identity categories for that person. What race were they, that type of thing. And the idea was they wanted to increase racial representation on air. And the problem was it was not a public project. And so when you were booking someone, you, you couldn't ask them, what race they were, you had to go on social media and start digging around and trying to guess, which to me felt, I felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that. And I expressed that discomfort, Um, not the least of which, because when you are talking about guests and you're viewing them through that very narrow lens, you're not talking about intellectual or ideological diversity 
you can still end up with the majority of your guests being um, highly educated, very high earners from a certain class economically, and all of the same ideological mindset, just different racial backgrounds. And also, I felt uncomfortable with, I had seen leading up to this, there's a great filmmaker in the States, Eli Steele, and he had um, done this wonderful documentary called How Jack Became Black. So it's about his multiracial son, Jack, and how the LA school board forced him to check a box for which race his son was. And he is reflecting in the documentary about racialized thinking and the impact that it has had on his life. So his one side of his family are the descendants of slaves and the other side of his family are Holocaust survivors. Two horrible examples of what happens when we start thinking that kind of racialized thinking. And the documentary had a really big impact on me. And he has since, I've since interviewed him um, for my Substack. But I felt like once you open that Pandora's box and you start dividing everyone up racially, I just think that it's a really dangerous and destructive way to go. And that we have seen the impacts of that throughout history. Like humanity has tried this many times. It does not work out well. And I felt, um, I felt really uncomfortable with that. Uh, also I highlighted in my letter, um, the way that hiring works at the CBC. So for even a contract, you have to sit for a board and those boards, um, do not take into account, like, how much experience you have in the newsroom, what shows you've worked on, you know, um, how successful you've been in the building so far. It's, it, it really is about answering questions and each question is scored and the one who gets the highest score wins the board and gets the contract or it, in some cases the, the full-time permanent job. But a lot of these questions are overtly ideological and the answers that get the high scores are overtly ideological. And that disturbed me as well. So those were the sort of things that I was highlighting in my letter. And I think, you know, there were many instances that led up to the decision. It was not an easy decision to make, as you can imagine. Um, It was not an easy decision to make to break ranks. And uh, I loved my work there and I loved that building. But um, in the end, I felt compelled to have a more public conversation about these things. That's really interesting. You highlighted the value that uh, progressive individuals who sort of fit that that woke ideology have on symbology over substance. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about because I'm not a fan of land acknowledgements as they're currently done. I don't see it fruitful. I see it as a little bit divisive, uh, like just the terminology of unseated. There's a good comedian I just saw who kind of related it to like someone breaks into your house, takes your house and then says like, um, I see you out there. I acknowledge that it must be cold outside, but, uh, like it's not helpful. And the argument, the original reason for it was that it would change sort of our dialogues around, uh, reserve land. And in BC, we're sort of an interesting, kind of separated from treaties and so the argument was it would bring governments to the table and from my understanding it was the provincial government that helped bring them in and then realized wait is this an admission of guilt and then they removed doing any land acknowledgements out of fear that it could actually mean something it could result in something and so i'm just interested in your thoughts on this symbology over substance Mm -hmm. um is that something you've seen increase Yes. And I find it troubling. And I think it's indicative of the fact that these are elite politics. Um, as you say, the land acknowledgements are, are, are very, very popular, but in my view, they don't mean much. I would like to see concrete action on the material conditions for indigenous people in this country. I would like to see concrete action. And I, I think that I think that what's happening, and this has taken me a long time to get to this, I've been very influenced by a thinker called Rob Henderson, um, who's at Cambridge, and he talks a lot about luxury beliefs. And uh, there are views that get promoted 
in the elite class, and I'm talking about economically elite, that um, make the elite class feel very good about themselves, but um, do a disservice to everyone else. And I think you see a lot of examples of that. Um, One of the most famous that Rob Henderson points to is the defund the police movement. Now, there are many things to criticize about policing and the criminal justice system, and I have done so throughout my career. Of course, I started in hip-hop. I sat with people, interviewing people who had had their lives absolutely shaped by the criminal justice system in the States. However, if you look at the data, people in marginalized neighborhoods in the States do not want less policing. And the people who are most for abolishing the police are people who live in neighborhoods where crime is not an issue. And so you have this huge divide in terms of what um, elite politics promotes and what uh, big other portions of the population favor. Um, And so my sense is, um, and this is just my thinking, is I think we are, you know, as you know, we are in this age of huge income inequality. Um, In Canada, billionaires increased their wealth during the pandemic. I think it was 68%. I'd have to check that, but it was somewhere around there. We have massive, massive gaps between the rich and the poor. And if you are economically privileged, I think any human being would feel some guilt over that. (laughs) It doesn't feel right to have a lot and to see people with so little. You know something's not right. Now, if you displace that on symbolic gestures, if you displace that on luxury beliefs, you don't have to actually confront the material conditions. My view is all of that energy that's being spent on the symbolic stuff um, diffuses the urgency of us all to find a more material equal, materially equal society for everyone. I think it's a cop-out. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I think it's, I'd like to understand who are we talking about when we say the elite? Because it feels like right now we're starting to see inflation, a recession. We're starting to feel maybe less elite even in our own lives. And it's something... Mm -hmm it's a sobering circumstance to look at your grocery store list and say, "Hmm, maybe not this month. Maybe we won't get the Dunkaroos or the snacks or the treats. It it almost recalibrates. And I'm just curious, who are we talking about when we think the elite are, is it the billionaires? Is it people who make over $70,000 a year? Who are we thinking of? Such a good question. And I think about this all the time too. So, I mean, the traditional formulation is the 1%, right? That own all the wealth and have a lot of power and influence. There's another set of thinking on this that that is more the 20% at the top. And I'm talking about strictly income. That That is often referred to as the professional managerial class. This is the people who are managing the assets and wealth and managing society, the, the top bureaucrats, the top HR people, the, you know, the top journalists, the top academics, the, the, the sort of top of society in terms of influence power, but, but money as well, that, that top 20% of earners. So I, I struggle sometimes to think about how we define it. Um, but I think once you look at the economics, once you look at who's earning and who's not, and the distribution of income throughout our society, it, be, it becomes more clear. Yeah, fair enough. Substack, how did it come onto your radar? Um, Chris Best, one of the co-founders, is actually Canadian, which is uh, something to be very proud of. How did you make this decision? What did you see in the platform? It's obviously added podcasts in as an as an option. Um, I think their recommendation system is fascinating uh, and gives me a lot of hope that we can we've maybe found a pathway out of these algorithms. Uh, what did you see in the platform, uh, and and why did you? choose to create one? So um, during my last year at CBC, I also um, wrote for the Globe and Mail very regularly and, and still do sometimes. And the um, the Substack thing began to really fascinate me um, because I was feeling so stifled 
um, in the newsroom because I wasn't hearing alternative perspectives. And I began to look at a lot of places to try to find alternative perspectives to just think through what are some other ways of thinking about these big issues of our time. And I found myself more and more going to Substack. And I found really, really exciting writers and journalists on Substack. And of course, there were a lot of, um, in 2020, there were a lot of people who left mainstream media and went to Substack quite publicly. And so I reported out a very long piece for the Globe and Mail on Substack. And I spent a couple of months researching and interviewing and, um, in the course of that interview, Barry Weiss, who uh, famously left the New York Times and eventually started a Substack. And I also interviewed Hamish McKenzie, who is another one of the founders at Substack. And uh, then the piece held for, I think it was probably about six months after I had filed it, which happens sometimes, right? And uh, during that time, as things I were finding um, things more and more challenging, um, at CBC, and I found more and more alternate voices on Substack, and uh, began to think this is this is one of the most exciting things that has happened to journalism in a really long time. That it is making it possible for writers to go independent and actually make a living, and it's so necessary and so needed right now. So after the piece was finally published, I spent some time really thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I eventually, after much deliberation, decided to go to Substack. And I'm very, very glad that I did. Um, I, it's incredibly, it's incredibly, incredibly liberating to be able to follow my curiosity uh, to not feel hemmed in in terms of who I book to feel um, like I can ask the questions I think most need to be asked um, and also to develop a really wide readership. I get a lot of mail and that is incredibly interesting after 20 years of being out all the time soliciting views to suddenly have this wave of views coming to me all, all the time. It's a really interesting experience and I, I'm learning so much from it. So I'm very happy at Substack. And yes, Chris, um, I know Chris a little bit. I've met him and I'm very uh, proud of the Substack founders because they have resisted a lot of pressure. They are very staunch free speech advocates, which is a value I believe in very strongly. I think it's the foundation of our democracy. And so I'm quite proud to be at Substack and I'm very happy there. And it's, uh, it's working very well for me. How did you go about developing a plan for the medium? Because the medium is great, but you have to figure out how you're going to communicate into it, how you're going to book guests, how long you want the conversations to be, how long you want the articles to be, how many photos. How did you go about thinking about starting Substack, creating a plan to kind of implement your voice into the into the medium? Yeah, so I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> and I've really developed it as I went. Um, I knew I wanted to do a podcast. Uh, I The first episode was 30 minutes. I, I chose 30 minutes because people are so busy, um, but also because it's quite easy to book a 30-minute guest. Most authors, most journalists, um, most people have half an hour. Um, and I also feel like in the audience, most people have half an hour. That's like a typical drive. It's a typical walk to work. It's a typical clean up your kitchen after work kind of, um, amount of time. And I also, um, in terms of the articles, I've really learned that, um, and I learned this from, from reading other kind of op-ed personalities that it's, you want to try to develop one idea at a time that you don't want it too long. And that I never, the written pieces in particular, I never rush those. I always sit with them for quite a bit of time. I also go back to them and look and where have I been? Um, is there any hyperbole here? Is there anything that I couldn't back up? Is there anything that is unkind or uncharitable that I could take out? Is there anything that is unnecessarily um, divisive? Is there, I, I try to really think that through and think about, I still have friends that I would say are quite, again, this terrible word woke. Um, I think about them reading it and think about what arguments they might have. And so I really spend a lot of time on the articles. The podcasts are, are much 
easier for me because I come from radio. I've written radio scripts for many years. A cue line is quite easy for me. And uh, the actual interviewing process is very easy. It's easy to find and book guests. I feel like I could do three a week if I had more resources. Um, But in yeah, it's, it is different mediums. And I think my goal, once the Substack grows more is to, to hire an editor. Um, I have uh, a friend who's a newspaper editor who helped me during the first three months or, or so, maybe even a little longer of the Substack, And that is invaluable. Of course, you need someone. The important thing is to pit bias against bias is to have someone poking holes in your work and challenging you. And that is you know, I've been edited my whole career. I, everybody is better with an editor. I'm, I am much better with an editor. Fascinating. Let's start with the podcast. How do you go about choosing guests? Is it you're reading their book already? Uh, are you going through newspapers? Uh, just personally, I'm always looking for potential guests and trying to think about what the conversation might look like. So it's fascinating to me to talk to someone who's interviewed such a wide array of people over their career. So I think um, I'm a huge reader. I probably read two, three books a week, every week, and I get sent a lot of books. And so that's a really good starting point. I get sent a lot of books and I get pitched a lot of guests, which is helpful. I also spend a lot of time reading other substacks and listening to other podcasts. And I'm always trying to find, because my podcast is about heterodox thought, it's about challenging the orthodoxies of the day. I try to find thinkers who are going to say something that you wouldn't hear in the mainstream, you know, represent a viewpoint that is um, interesting and novel and um, on this growing list of subjects that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, I also do try really hard to not just cover one thing. I think this is important for audience capture is to make sure that you're covering a huge array of topics. And so there are many topics that I'm really interested in. I'm really interested in feminism. I'm really interested in the opioid crisis. I'm interested in the COVID policy and where that has all gone. I'm interested in freedom of speech. I do a lot of media criticism. So I try to really make sure that the guest base is quite diverse. And I also try to make sure, like I choose based on um, ideological diversity. I want to make sure that I'm covering a lot of viewpoints. I want to make sure that, you know, someone who is, conservative listening to the podcast, someone who is socialist listening to the podcast, that there are representative views across the ideological spectrum. That's really important to me. But I also want there to be an element of surprise of something that you wouldn't expect to hear. So those are some of the kind of guideposts for me in terms of how I choose Yeah, I think that that's really important because one of my questions was around audience capture. I've seen other uh, journalists start to see what gets clicks, what gets views, what gets reposts, what elicits an emotion from a person, and then to follow that. And even doing this, it's like I can see what's doing well, but I can also see what interests me. And that might not be what does really well on, on social media or reaches a lot of people, but nonetheless, it interests me. And I feel uh, an obligation to chase that, to continue, despite maybe it's not the most popular, to stay true to why I started this and, and my personality still coming through in the communication. Has that been a challenge? Was that on your radar when you started this? I know about audience capture, so I'm very aware. And I do, as, as you say, we have analytics. We can see what does really well and what doesn't. And I agree with you that it's really, really important to resist audience capture. And um, I do that in a number of ways. I, I do it through exposure to different views. And so there are a lot of people I follow on Twitter who I don't agree with. There are a lot of authors whose books I read that are not natural alignment with my own views. And I invite people on the podcast who I may disagree with on certain topics. Um, I think exposure piece is very, very important. Um, But also to resist the expectations of the audience, I think is very important. And I'm prepared to lose subscribers over that because I think it's such an important principle. And so, for example, um, I know that my audience 
doesn't always love it when I have mainstream media journalists on, but I think it's really important to sometimes have mainstream media journalists on, particularly the ones that are doing really interesting and important work in in a particular area. Um, I also think there's a, you know, John Kay in, um, in Toronto just did a Colette podcast. He was interviewed on the podcast and he talked about audience capture. And one of the strategies he talks about is what you and I were just discussing this idea of making sure that you are covering a range of different topics. You know, the culture wars does the best. We know that, but I don't want to just be about the culture wars. I think it's important to talk about those issues. I think they're really important and have a huge impact and I want to cover other topics as well. And that I think that's a good safeguard to make sure that you're not just doing one thing all the time. And to, you know, to also to, to try to challenge the audience a little bit. And I, I find it really rewarding when I do something, when I take a chance and, and book a guest where I, I think maybe it is going to go a little bit against the grain. And then I see it get, huge numbers. Like sometimes we're wrong about the audience capture too. And I love that. I love being wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. There's been ones where I was like, I'm doing this because it interests me. Then it interests everyone else. And that's like, thank goodness. I didn't like, I didn't change my perspective on it. You're in a circumstance when you're in a newsroom that maybe you don't get the actual feedback from a human being. You put something out there and you walk away and you have no idea whether it resonated. And even you get like a smaller outliers of people because it's only people who are furious or very happy with the piece that speak. You might not get that middle ground looking mm-hmm. at the comment section of Substack on yours. It's so thoughtful. You, you, to me, I'm humbled by the critical perspectives people bring such nuanced viewpoints that we might not expect. It was one of the hard things when we talk about truckers is you think they have a perspective, but they don't. They're human beings. They have lived experiences. They live in your communities. They commute across Canada. They are integrated in different areas. And we're not just one thing. And so mm-hmm. seeing your Substack inspires me because it shows that people are complex, multifaceted, fascinating individuals. And I'm just curious as to what that's meant for you, because perhaps most of your career, you don't get a lot of uh, direct comments to what you just said. And now you're getting more and more feedback. And it's like, it's paragraphs. It's filled with information of like people sharing their thoughts on an issue uh, almost vulnerably to me. Mm-hmm. You're right. The the comments are very thoughtful. And I think, I think it's been huge. I mean, I spent a lot of years as a rank and file journalist behind the scenes, right? I mean, I, I had some profile, I had a book out, I, I moderated events, but mainly I was very rank and file. I was very much behind the scenes. And so, um, to have this relationship with readers now is, is incredible. And, I think that there has been a lot of times in the last year where I have been challenged by readers and have had to really think through my positions, which is so useful. And I've also um, found that the kind of variety of perspectives has been really interesting as well to see how many different ways people react to the same piece. And also um, what you don't see is the mail that I get. And the mail is like those comments times a hundred people telling me their very personal stories. I particularly um, got a lot of mail from unvaccinated Canadians and to hear, as you say, everyone are such individuals. I mean, people have such unique circumstances and unique reasons for making the choices that they make and unique life experiences and circumstances. And I found it very moving and I continue to find it really moving that people want to communicate in that way. I would really like to get to a point where I have more help on the Substack because the volume of mail that I get, I can't respond to every person. And I think that's so sad because if people um, take the time to write you, you really want to write them back. Um, But it means a lot to me. It really means a lot to me. I am so happy to hear that. I think what you're doing and what Substack's created the opportunity for people to do is so inspiring because it gives you the freedom to share your voice. And the the challenge we've always had is getting into the newsroom, getting into a position where you could share your perspective and you start to realize that people have vast 
complex perspectives. Um, they don't fit into one category like we often like them to do. Uh, just going back to one point that I'm curious on is uh, you talked about like what Canadians think in polling and stuff. I'm just interested. Do you think that that's a reflection of what Canada does think? Or do you think it's challenging to get the actually what people end up sending you information about their lives, the real thoughts, not just from one to five, what is your perspective on this? What mm -hmm. is your actual thought through perspectives? It seems like there might be more truth in that than some of the polling that we often do to try and understand human mm -hmm. beings. I think you're right. I think it's very difficult to get an accurate perception on where the public is at. I think Twitter is the worst possible way of gauging that because <laughs> you have really such a small percentage of the population that's on Twitter and even a smaller percentage than that that are active on Twitter. So Twitter is not the way to go. I think you're right that polling can be very flawed. Um, the problem with mail is it's anecdotal. So it's very difficult to get a sort of broader, big picture, but you can, I mean, there are things that you can notice. I mean, I noticed that Pierre Polyev just won the conservative leadership in a landslide. That is a clear signal from the public. The fact that the conservative party has now um, in the lead up to that race, uh, signed up just this massive tsunami of new members. That is, uh, I think, an important signal for us to be watching. So you can, you can get senses like that. I mean, I think the other way is, and this is a getting back to your question earlier about journalism. I mean, when I started journalism, you were out all the time. You were out, you were out on the streets, right? And if you talk to a hundred people in a day about the same issue, you do have a better handle on it than if you've been on Twitter for 20 minutes. Like, so we went from being out all the time to then being on the phone all the time, which is still better, but not, certainly not as good as being out to then being on zoom all the time. And again, back to this idea of elitism, I mean, you're going to get a very different perspective if you're standing on a street corner doing streeters and you talk to tons of people from all different walks of life than if you talk to someone with a laptop and a Zoom connection. <laughs> it's just very different, right? Yeah. Um, and I very much want to try to talk to as many people as I possibly can. And I, I think that's one of the big challenges of the media environment that we're in right now, particularly that working class perspectives are just not represented at all. And I find that really troubling. I couldn't agree with you more. Can you tell people how they can connect with you on Twitter, um, Substack, and on any other social media platforms, how they can stay up to date on all the amazing work you're doing? Because I think you bring such a balanced perspective uh, and are working to always improve and self-reflect. And I just think that the voices like yours are so important. Thank you so much. Uh, people can come to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. They can also find my podcast, Lean Out with Tara Henley, on any podcast platform. And on Twitter, I'm Tara R. Henley. And thank you so much for this interview. You ask really thoughtful questions, and it's just a real pleasure to get to speak with you. This has been such a milestone for me personally because I've been following you since uh, you wrote that original piece in the National Post. And uh, to see the success you've had, uh, to see you keep such a balanced perspective, uh, it's it's enlightening. It gives me such hope for where we can go, that uh, there are platforms that, that create the space for such important voices, and hopefully we can create that middle ground again for, for our communities, for our culture, and I just I think you're a really important voice in Canada right now. So thank you so much for being willing to do this. Uh, it's been such an honor and a privilege. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to be with you.